Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Happen to have been around for a while, or maybe you have just joined us in the last few weeks, uh, and maybe we haven't had a chance to meet personally. My name is Scott. I would love to connect. Let me just figure out. Here we go. And this is because we really do love the way that community is felt when we come together in a time like this on a Sunday, but maybe in joining a volunteer team like we were talking about a second ago, or attending events, or leaning into new friendships during the week. That's what many of us are doing. But we also hope that relationship and connection are at the center of those things, which is why I am always open to meeting up in everyday life. So if you don't know my email address, scott at commons.church, super easy, shoot me a note and I'd love to set up a time to meet and talk about life, share stories together, that'd be great. And with that said, we are going to jump right into this next step in our journey through the story of Joseph that we've been on for the last couple of months. Last week we were so privileged we had Bobby with us to lead us through the previous episode and just quickly, if you are newer to our community, That may have been the first time that you've heard from somebody else on our teaching team here in Inglewood, which is something that it happens pretty regularly here at Commons, and this is because while we do have a vision uh, to become a network of parishes across the urban core of Calgary, we do hope to grow and mature as as a community with a team of voices at the center of it. And this is because we we really do believe that we are all better when we have multiple voices informing our spiritual lives and where we are regularly stretched by those who maybe have a different perspective than us, maybe they have a different emphasis, maybe they come to the scriptures with a different sense of their own story and then they interpret that story differently than we're used to. And this is why we choose to shape our community through multiple teaching personalities. Something that you'll get to experience a little bit more as we head into the end of the year and going into Advent, and I'm excited that you guys get to reap the benefits of that, and I also do too, so that's fun. I'm so thankful for the ways that Bobby pushed us to consider how Joseph moves from difficult situation to difficult situation in his life, and as he does, he refines the essence of who he is. And God seems to be at work in the mystery of that for Joseph. And then last week, we also looked at how we do all of this kind of interpreting in our lives with hopes and dreams and circumstances sometimes clouding our ability to see. And this story encourages us to realize that the divine can often be a source for us in seasons like that, where perhaps maybe we cultivate the practice of choosing to see our life as rooted in divine potential, no matter how dark things seem. And this is important because like Joseph did last week, inevitably we find ourselves at our lowest point. Back maybe in a place that we thought we'd escaped from, or maybe haunted by a lack of peace that we haven't felt for a while, or maybe feeling like we're adrift in the middle of our own life. And one of the most difficult things about those times for many of us is how they leave us feeling like we're all alone. And that we've been left, maybe by loved ones or by our friends, and ultimately by God. Which is, in my opinion, the most most pernicious form of evil in the world. That feeling of being abandoned. That no help 
will come and that our sorrow and our mistakes are a sign that we have been forgotten. And Bobby joked that Joseph is the patron saint of being forgotten, which just means that whatever dark place you've been in or the space maybe that you occupy today, if you were to look around there, you'd figuratively see Joseph's name carved into the wall or into the furniture somehow. And that's important because for most of us, true hope and faith and love, these things can't come to us without us first being able to trace our way back to many of our darkest moments, to find that even there, hope was available and an active resource for us. And Joseph's story is a great help to us in this because it doesn't trivialize or it actually doesn't idealize the human experience. And it doesn't sugarcoat how life sometimes opens up underneath us sometimes, where being a solid human being doesn't disqualify us from suffering. But the story can also help us because it time and time again points to how God has a way of being in the dark. And the divine has a way of showing up in the pits that we fall into. And what's constant is that God sticks with Joseph. And this doesn't keep him from difficulty, it actually holds him in it, which is something that we all need at some point. When we can't see how things are ever gonna change or when we've convinced ourselves that we're somehow responsible for all of the messes that have come to us. Joseph's story then helps us to imagine or maybe just wake up perhaps to the possibility that God's goodness might surround us and keep us and sustain us in all of the hard times. Now, what's interesting is that today, the story actually starts to turn, and we're gonna see some shifts in Joseph's trajectory as a character, but before we get to that, why don't we take a moment and pray together. Join me now. Gracious God, you are God of all, and we are thankful for the ways that we encounter your welcome for the ways that you are present in all of our very journeys. How your mercy has a way of surprising us and how wide and how deep it is. You find us wherever we find ourselves and especially when we come together like this, in the smiles we exchange, in the laughter we share, in the names we learn maybe for the first time perhaps, we extend your welcome to each other and we're reminded that this life, all of it, is a gift. We're, we are meant to wake up to how we're never truly alone, and community teaches us this ever so slowly. So thank you for that. And we ask, would you guide us now as we come to the text? Be truth for all of our searching today, and be light for all of our confusion and be hope for all of our wandering, bringing us safely home to you, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So today we are, need to talk a little bit about time lapses and unlikely sources and how things change and the right kind of certainty. And as we get going thinking about some of these things, let's pick up the story where we left off last week, if you don't mind. You're going to remember that Joseph helps Pharaoh's cupbearer out, and when the cupbearer gets his job back, Joseph asks for a favor, kind of like he's like, can you just put in a good word for me when you get out of this place? And the text says that the guy forgets Joseph. 
And we read then that when two full years had passed, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a dream, and he was standing by the Nile River, and when out of the river there came seven cows, sleek and fat. I don't know how you can be sleek and fat at the same time, but anyways. And they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows came, ugly and gaunt. These came out of the river as well, and they stood beside those others on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. And of course he woke up, because that's disturbing, surreal stuff. And we'll look at that more in a second, but first I want to point something out that's important to notice when you're reading the scriptures. And this is the time markers. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to somebody in our community about the scriptures, and they asked me something that we actually hear a lot here at Commons, and that's something like this. They said, I love these ideas that we're exploring as a community, but how do I learn to read the Bible and see what you see on, on my own? Which is such a good question. And there is no stock answer for it, but I do have a couple of thoughts that I offered to this person and I want to offer them to you as well. The first thing that I'll mention is that we do run a series called Backstory, which is this sweeping overview done over a few weekday nights of how the texts of the scriptures came together and then looking at the history and theology that we get from them and then the literary genres that make up the Bible. And it gives you a quick intro into the biblical literature that we use as a teaching team here at Commons and helps you to see all of the ways that the scriptures can impact your life by knowing just a little bit more how they came together. So keep your eyes open for the next opportunity to register for that in 2019. The truth about that information is that our teaching team, all of us, have pursued educational opportunities that have shaped our research skills, but they've also shaped our libraries which just means that we have a little bit more background in that stuff as opposed to knowing how to engineer things or knowing how to account for money in the world or knowing how to save people's lives or to teach children how to read. You know, the important stuff that you guys do, right? We just have different information. And it's important for you to then see that that's not a limitation because by studying and having access to biblical scholarship, that helps us read well, yes. But one of the other things that it or we can be encouraged to do, is to learn to read imaginatively. And we can all do this. It doesn't matter what your background or your skills are. And this is something that brings me back, this idea, is something that brings me back to this time frame reference that's at the beginning of our story here today. And I know I've mentioned this in our teaching here at Commons before, but the scriptures have a way of dropping time references in a way that we don't always attend to. And this is crucial to notice, not just because of the historicity of the text, but because these kinds of references can help us situate and imagine the narrative more directly. And one of the ways that we can do this is to think, well, just like the story says that two years later, after two years had passed, think about, well, can I think about a two-year span in my own life? Maybe I was in a certain relationship or perhaps I was dealing with health issues, or maybe I moved across the country, or I was let go from a job, and all you have to do is note the time, and it connects with your own story. And now all of a sudden for Joseph, Joseph fills out as a character for us, and maybe we catch a glimpse of how long two years is, and how hard it must have been to stay positive and upbeat over that long of a period. 
And that's just one way of looking at the text. Because it's important to note how time does pass and how for all that Joseph goes through, things don't stay the same for him. God moves him along, journeys with him, keeps him in all that he experiences, which might be what some of us need to hear most today. Maybe there's something that we're learning about ourselves and it's taking longer than we thought it might. And maybe in this space that we occupy, our hearts and minds are opening to fresh and exciting paths of being and it's just taking a while. Where we're learning though, that in the middle of that time lapse, there is no time lapse in God's nearness to us and the way he moves our stories along faithfully. Now, we come back to the story then with this idea. We see that Pharaoh had this dream. Actually, he had two dreams. The first one is about these rabid cows that I read to you, and then the text said that he has another dream. And in this one, he sees seven healthy heads of grain. And these seven heads of grain, he sees, or he sees another seven, and they've been wilted by the desert wind. And then those seven wilted heads of grain eat the healthy ones. And again, it says that he wakes up. And the text says this, it's, it's interesting, it says that he's troubled. The term here, it just means that he's perturbed or he's bewildered. But there's also this reference that he can't shake these dreams. Because when he's recounting them a little bit later to Joseph, Pharaoh actually uses more sensational language and more descriptive adjectives than the narrator does when he's telling us the story. And all this means is that for Pharaoh, the images in his mind of these cows and this grain, these are really bugging him, which is pretty easy to imagine, actually. Because even as our understanding of neuroscience and the human psyche continues to grow and develop, those two fields of inquiry were sparked by theories of how our brains and our subconscious selves are at work in how dreams emerge in our lives. And I'm not interested in digressing into the science of dreams here today, especially because a recent study has discovered that we have strong biases in how we interpret our dreams. But I do want to point out that Pharaoh's experience parallels our own in that many of us have dreams that have an emotional quality or a visceral impact so that we find ourselves walking around the next day feeling as though the contents of our dream were true. Has this happened to you? Maybe you dreamed that you forgot to put pants on and then you felt embarrassment and shame for some reason for the rest of the day and that wasn't connected to reality. It was part of this dream you'd had. Or maybe you dreamt that your child wasn't in their crib. Or maybe that they were lost in an expansive Walmart and it took you several hours to shake the fear and panic that you woke up with. I had one like this a few years ago when I dreamt that I was betrayed by someone. And it took me a whole day to realize, why am I in this funk? And why do I feel so afraid and I realized that it was just stemming from this dream I'd had that wasn't connected to reality at all. And I only mention this because Pharaoh's story, narrative though it is, it mirrors this experience we have. Because scholars point to how the king's dream about cows, you remember the imagery, it shows them coming out of the Nile River, which was the lifeblood of the Egyptian civilization to the degree that the river was actually seen as divine. It was seen as a source of life from the gods. And then in this dream about wheat, Pharaoh imagines a stiff wind coming out of the desert and destroying an entire harvest. 
And this was a terrifying prospect for an ancient culture that was the breadbasket of its own people and then ultimately of many outside its borders. So ultimately, we need to see that Pharaoh's bothered because he senses that his dreams might actually correlate to real life in some way, just like you and I do occasionally. And the text says this. It says that he gets up and he sent for the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. And the terms used to describe these employees of the king are pretty interesting because the word translated as magicians is actually a term that scholars think that the Hebrew authors of this text actually borrowed from Egyptian. And this is only because it, it appears in the text only when the authors are trying to describe a soothsayer or a prophet from a different ancient culture where their wisdom and their knowledge are seen as being sourced from someone other than Yahweh, who is the Hebrew God. Now, and the second term, wise men, this just refers to those who may have been in the court of Pharaoh, and they had specialized skills. These are professional advisors and opinion makers, okay? And this is why Nahum Sarna, the scholar, and others question what's being inferred here in this story. It's not that these really smart, talented people didn't offer interpretations. It's that their interpretations didn't match for Pharaoh. Where Pharaoh was convinced that the images he's seen were significant, his advisors couldn't provide suitable help. And the suggestions of those that he normally sought refuge in and listened to, they didn't have the emotional resonance that his dreams continued to bear out in his everyday life. And we're going to come back to that in a second. Because what happens is that the cupbearer that had forgotten Joseph, he overhears Pharaoh and these advisors talking, apparently. And basically, he's like, oh, okay, so king, you remember that time that me and my buddy, we got into trouble with you and you threw us in jail? And while we were there, we had these dreams. And while we were there, there was this young Hebrew there with us. He was a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream, and things turned out exactly like he interpreted for us. And the king's like, what do I even have you here for? So he doesn't waste a second, and he sends for Joseph, and he quickly is brought out of the dungeon, and he's shaved, and he is, his clothes changed, and then he's brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream, and none of these other guys can interpret it, but I've heard it's said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And we're going to talk more about Joseph's transformation that we just read about there in a second. But first, we need to acknowledge the absurdity of this image. You have the ruler of an ancient civilization who's viewed as the divine incarnate in his culture. He's asking a freshly shaved slave prisoner for advice. He's desperate for an explanation for the turmoil in his mind. And as I already said, it's not that hard for us to imagine a place of emotional strain like Pharaoh finds himself in here. Because we've all faced a difficult situation, a difficult decision. Maybe we've known that we needed to take a certain direction, but we lacked the courage to do it. Or maybe we came to a place where we felt lost as for what step to take next and how to move on. And sometimes it's in places like that that we find our usual resources for wisdom 
our loved ones or our go-to podcasts or the parenting books we own or the scriptures. In fact, everything that we thought we knew just doesn't seem to be working. And those sources of wisdom, they leave us and the answers they provide don't resonate with our problem. And they don't clear the fog that we find ourselves in, which is why this image might be timely for some of us to open our hearts and our minds to new inputs, to unanticipated sources of wisdom. And I can't tell you where you're going to find those. But I can tell you that a couple of years ago, when my wife was really ill, we were facing questions of if her treatment was going to work. And those questions left me really unsure of how to just live in the world. And it's in that space that I found notable atheist and author, author Christopher Hitchens to be a ready source of comfort and wisdom. And that might seem a little ironic, but let me explain. See, Hitchens himself had contracted cancer. And in, a few month, in the final months of his life, he wrote this brilliant little book called Mortality, which I found and I read it. And there were lots of things there that stirred my heart and provoked me and gave me courage to face our future. But one of them was his statement, and this is what he said, so far I have decided to take whatever my disease can throw at me and to stay combative even while taking the measure of my inevitable decline. I repeat, this is no more than what a healthy person has to do in slower motion because it is our common fate. And that might not seem profound to you, but then neither might the support of a kind friend who keeps showing up in your life unannounced. And neither is the subtle joy and levity that a new book or a new author or a show might bring to you like The Good Place has been bringing to me lately. Or maybe it's the quiet in your mind that a new routine or a new exercise might be bringing to you. And whatever the case, the story here, this one we're reading, it teaches us to hope that wisdom and insight are always present to us when we're troubled, but encouraging us to look for it in unlikely sources, which is related to something that we might catch here as well. See, the story says that Pharaoh hears about Joseph and then sends for him. And I, I love the language here, how Joseph was quickly brought from the dungeon. And they shave him up and they change his clothes. And this is a complete queer eye transformation here. And we need to make sure that we don't miss how fast Joseph's trajectory changes. How for every time he seemed to be okay and then he slipped into another pit. This time, he wakes up in prison one morning, disheveled and overgrown, and the next moment, he's brought and he's cleaned and he's clothed again. And I get it. Most of us don't have rags to riches moments like this, but what about the times in our lives when things change into brightness and hope when we couldn't have anticipated that? Like when we get a job or an opportunity that we thought impossible, or when we welcome a child, or when we find a community that fits us, or maybe when we get long-sought medical advice and treatment that totally changes our quality of life, or a relationship or a friendship blossoms overnight and we can't imagine our life before that happened. 
for all that Joseph's story teaches us about attending to God's careful, slow work during hardship. This moment does the opposite. It's meant to arrest our attention for how grace can come to us in the serendipity of the quickly moments. Moments that remind us that all of life has the potential to be gift and where change is easy and it's welcome and it's hope-filled for us. Now, what happens is that Joseph tells Pharaoh, look, I can't interpret your dreams like this guy over here is saying, but God can and God will. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. And then Joseph matter-of-factly tells him, look, your dreams represent the same thing. Egypt is going to have seven years of surplus. Think fat cows and healthy grain, followed by seven years of lack. Those are the cannibal cows and the zombie grain. And he tells the king, the bad years are going to be so bad that people are going to forget how good things were. And you can almost see Pharaoh going, okay, well, that explains why the dreams were so disturbing for me. But then Joseph tells him that he's had two dreams because this future that he sees has been firmly decided by God and that God will do it soon, which is this really curious phrase, and we're going to come back to it in a second. Because then Joseph, unsolicited, starts telling Pharaoh what to do. And he moves out of his dream interpretation lane, which is what he's been brought there to do. And he starts saying, okay, so what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to find somebody to manage this operation. You're going to build some infrastructure to handle the excess of the next season and prepare for the years of lack that are coming up. And we're going to actually come back to some of this next week when we look at what happens after this conversation. Because what we have to deal with today is how Joseph is so certain about what's going on. And the language about how God has determined all that's about to unfold. I mean, Joseph makes some pretty bold claims here. They're claims that can feel distant from our experience. Because if we aren't careful, we can read this story maybe superficially or uncritically. And then if we do that, we can conclude that the point of the story and these kinds of phrases that are being used, they're meant to tell us that Joseph's received a divine message. And that with these special powers he's had since he was a kid, he has insight into a certain future. And that God has determined the course of nations and leaders but I don't think that's what we're supposed to walk away with. And, and to be sure, these are large questions that theologians and ethicists with much larger pay grades than mine still grapple over and they can't come to complete resolution with. But I think there's something to be said about the right kind of certainty that Joseph points us toward. See, sure, Joseph seems to have this skill for hearing dreams and knowing what they mean. But when you think about it, the future that he projects for Pharaoh is pretty normal because aren't your life and mine and much of human history just a record of moving between good times and bad times, between beautiful experiences and challenging ones? I mean, the story is not as profound if Joseph shows up like a bad palm reader and is like, I see good times in your future. And I see bad times. It just doesn't have nearly the emotional resonance 
And then, of course, there's this interesting tension in how Joseph tells the king that God has determined how everything's going to play out. But then he proceeds to lay out very specific instructions for the human characters to follow, which implies that an alternative future is actually possible. And all of this points to an interpretive lens that scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests that we might use for this story, where what marks Pharaoh's character is a fear of facing all of the future with its potential disasters and blessings, and where Pharaoh is paralyzed paralyzed by anxiety and he can't find suitable advice for himself. Joseph models a very different way of being, a way that we might imagine makes so much sense for him as a character in the story, where every shattered dream and every injustice he's encountered and every setback he's endured These things have formed in Joseph a resolute trust that God is overseeing the story in some way. But then note that in Joseph, this trust doesn't form a sentimental belief that Yahweh will only bring good things his way. No, it acknowledges that in feast and famine, God's posture toward him is faithful and kind, and good, which may or may not ring true for you. Because maybe you've always felt at odds with the idea of faith. Because others modeled a kind of certainty with that idea that wasn't in touch with real life. Or maybe at one point you believed that God had everything under control, and that you were safe only to find out that despite your good intentions and the strength of your belief, life brought you suffering and debilitating darkness. Or maybe you've always been suspicious of the idea of the divine because God must only, if it's real, must, he must only care for those who seem to have themselves together. And if that's you, Joseph stands in this moment as a model for the right kind of certainty. Not one where all the outcomes are set in stone or where God's only on the side of the moral, but one where we trust ever so carefully that God will meet us in the future. And that whatever the future entails, knowing our lives and our effort to join God there, those things matter. And it's this kind of certainty that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians 2 when he told his friends that they're made right with God not by doing all the right things, but they're made right with God because of Jesus' faithful work in them. And like Paul for his friends, my prayer for you is that you would start to trust that same faithful work. And discover along the way that learning to surrender to it has a way of fueling your life. So much so that, like Peter N. says, you are most like God, not when you are certain you are right about God. Or when you tell others how right you are. But when you are acting toward others like God acts toward you. The humility, love, and kindness of the divine shaping a deep certainty inside 
And it comes as a quiet trust that God's goodness goes ahead of you in your story. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we're thankful for your faithful presence to us in community and in each of our varied stories. Many of us feel gaps maybe in our story or we feel gaps even in space from community and we know and trust even carefully today that you fill that space and you always and ever welcome us to step a little closer. And this is why in some way, in whatever way we can, we ask that you would help us to seek and find the truth and hope that come to us from the unanticipated sources in our lives. Would you open our eyes even in the coming days to the ways that you are courageously leading us into the newness that our experiences bring us and that you walk with us regardless of the difficulty we face. I ask too, would you give us courage to celebrate the quick moments and the quick changes that happen in us. I think so many times we have a tendency, we'll see these in others and would you give us clarity and grace to honor other stories by celebrating with them too. And I pray, would you help us to be shaped by the right kinds of certainty? Letting go of the ways that we have tried to find security in the idea that our future is unmoving or that your presence with us ensures that we won't face trouble. And instead, learning to trust that your promise is to guide us and meet us and find us along the way. We ask this in the name of Christ, our hope today. Amen.